Okay, here we go. Fire away. August 11, 2013, lecture discussion number 120 on the Book of Romans. And last Sunday, for those who were still desperately clinging to the death throes of our summer, um, and you missed last Sunday, and uh, you're in need of review. I'm looking around. Uh, whoever is clinging to the death throes of the summer is still doing it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, for those who might have missed, we went running full speed into the tall grass that is Psalm 22.1. And by the way, uh, summer in Alaska uh, is now officially over. This is for the Internet folks. The second Sunday in August ends uh, summer, as everyone knows. Um, and, the, you know, I'm wearing flannel today. That's not an accident. What is it? Uh, 51 degrees out there. I have a letter from Sharon. Let me throw this in here really fast because uh, uh, she wanted to know something. Um, uh, she says, I'm getting spoiled by getting the Roman series on a more regular basis. Is there, please, and I'm skipping a bunch, um, and she's having trouble. She says, that they take, uh, take me five to six times as long to hear as they do to play since uh, I step and go off on so many rabbi trails as I listen. See, I thought that was very clever, so I wanted to repeat that. See, pluralized rabbi. I mean, rabbit into rabbi. But anyway, she wants to know if we will ever get uh, the Roman series uh, like the Genesis series. And, and she has both of those and uh, a few of the other things that I have done. She wanted to know what else I have done uh, and where those series are. And um, I don't know where they are. I know I have a Joshua out there somewhere. And I know I have a Ezekiel out there somewhere that I did years and years ago. And they each took over a year to do. Um, and I, I don't know where everything is, Sharon, and we're sorry uh, about that. But if you have any uh, questions about where stuff is, the only one that knows really is only three or four people know. Uh, Mark, uh, Pegathy, and, and Supper Day. Uh, those, those are the uh, kind of the keepers of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, of the sermon. So uh, I would uh, say to you folks that are curious about that, to uh, get a hold of Supper Dave at the website on cliffside.org. Okay, again, the leaves are turning yellow and the fire weeds everywhere and it's raining and it'll keep raining and then, of course, it rains all the way till when? Uh, yeah, June. So we're now in the raining snow thing and, and we're losing, what, 30 minutes of daylight every 24 hours now, right? That's a bit of a, an exaggeration, but it, it that last part. It's getting really dark really fast. And tomorrow it'll be dark forever. It's just hopeless. And that's what we call what? We call that September. Uh, and, and September, as you know, is the real construction season. The real one. It's the month where everyone's panic-stricken and, and lawnmowers. Uh, you can get a lawnmower now for a hundred bucks now. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. And, they throw them in the back of your car now to get rid of them. I see that snowblowers are about 2,500, though, so they kind of make up for it. And, and, and four-wheel drives. And uh, what I, what's really, this is for me in the construction business all these years, concrete would go from, oh golly, it would jump 50 bucks a yard because they would say they're adding calcium to it to keep it from freezing. When they, that's not true. It's just the demand's so high. So that's what's going on. Uh, so that's what we call uh, September, the real construction month, uh, or the real construction season, and, and October is called the foundation tenting month. 
And so that's our calendar, our 12 months, if you will. We start out with dark month. And some people would say January, but we have dark month. And then we have dark cold month. And then we have cold month number one, right? And then we have still cold month. That's April. And then we have it, it snows still month, which is May. And then mosquito summer month. And then no see summer month. And then half summer month. And then that's where we are now. And then real construction month, foundation tenting month, cold month number two, and then really dark cold month. That is the calendar up here. And we're at the end of half summer month, as I said. And all of that is for our vast internet audience. Uh, and why do I bring it up? Because they tell me all the time they want to visit us. <laughs> What's wrong with them? What are you thinking? Stay, run for your lives. Don't come here. You notice the, uh, the roof is leaking again. Uh, and uh, so we have to cover everything to keep it from uh, uh, shorting and blowing up. I've always wanted to, I've done the, the uh, 12 months of Alaska before, and uh, people have said to me, we need to put a cliffside calendar out. And, uh, and I, I tell them that soon we're going to do that. And by soon, I mean never. Anyway, we went headfirst into Psalm 22.1, often called the fourth saying of the seventh saying. Very important that you know that there are seven sayings from Christ on the cross. And Psalm 22.1 is the fourth saying. That's very important. And last week, and I'll get to it in a minute, but I, I also did the seventh saying as well. Um, and that, of course, is into your Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. Okay? I, my. That, you'll see it referred to that way. So the fourth and the, se- and the seventh, um, very, very important. We're going to deal with those that, again today. But many scholars and commentators take the fourth saying, as you know, that is, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. And they call it the words of anguish or the words of loneliness. You'll see that very often. And those are two descriptions I find not just indefensible scripturally and logically, but almost identical to the uh, meaning, and meaning at least, to the words of the blaspheming thief. And uh, it's probably the most common titles. Remembering God's definition of blasphemy is critical as we read his Bible. Rule number one, you know, here at Cliffside, Christ is always God. Christ is never not God. If you have a position that violates rule number one, uh, you're, uh, you're face first in the dirt and, 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 and digging. Um, so that is why the blaspheming thief's recorded uh, words become so important to us. Once you realize what his role is in Scripture, or why he is always asked, why did God include what this man said, or this woman said, or this event? There's a reason he includes, he has all of these events, and he puts them into his Bible. Why does he do it? Because they have, a, they have a great purpose. There's no insignificant, coincidental happenstance. There's nothing in, that, in his Bible that can be passed over. And so the blaspheming thief, his recorded words become so important because they define blasphemy. And they present three examples of what we are never to think. All you got to do is read what he said and then tell yourself, I never can think that. I can't say it. I can't think it. It's wrong. It's defined as blasphemy. So you've got a perfect negative there, if you will. Never say what he said to Christ. 
Never think what he said about Christ. Never think what he said about himself. Remember, there were three parts to it. We'll get to that in a minute. Almost every sermon I've ever heard on the two thieves uh, focuses on the saved thief. And and he is uh, incredible. He's like that third captain. I see that second thief and that third captain. Of course, I would expect that uh, because I think the crucifixion and Elijah, First Kings, uh, um, or Second Kings one, sorry, have a relationship as does Second Kings two. So that saved thief, him and that third captain, they're sharing a condo somewhere. I mean, those guys are—they were uh, wonderful. Examples in the Bible of men who got it and got it quickly. Both of them facing death. Both of them threw themselves at the mercy of God. And that isn't a, a usual activity, by the way, a usual response. So the first thief is everyone wants to focus on him, and that's wonderful. And what he says, and he calls Christ the one who can remember the saved. He calls him, he says, remember me. And that word remember, very, very important. You are the rememberer. The rememberer of the saved is what he says to him. Because remembering um, of God having to remember who is saved and who is not saved, but it's always uh, formed in or put in the position of salvation. Um, and, he, and again, he calls Christ the one who can remember who the saved are. And only God does that. That's an amazing thing for him to say on the cross as he's about to die or soon to die. Because he understands that if you remember the saved, then what have you done? You have made them saved. How did you make them saved? You forgave their sins. So there's this relationship between remembering and forgiving. And the saved thief, he's on the cross. And he declares that his condemnation, his execution is just. Think about that. I'm guilty. I deserve this. He actually says to the blaspheming thief, we deserve this. Our condemnation, our execution always made me wonder what they did. Obviously what they did was a whole lot more serious than just uh, rebelling against the Roman army. We deserve this execution. And he said, he doesn't. He's completely and totally innocent. We're not. We're completely and totally guilty. And so he declares his own condemnation is just. Who does that, by the way? And he rebukes the blasphemy of the lost thief. The lost thief blasphemes Christ blasphemes God by blaspheming Christ. Same thing, right? Interchangeable. Christ is God. So the saved thief rebukes the blasphemy of the lost thief. I don't know that he did it with a high doctrinal understanding, but he did it perfectly. And and it's nonetheless extremely significant, greatly significant. You know, when you... Again, think of this. When you recognize that remembering is forgiving, remember the great question of Christ. What takes more power? Raising people from the dead, healing people, or forgiving sins. 
Christ made it clear that it takes more power to forgive sins. We'll get to that in a moment. The safe thief testifies as to the pure goodness of Christ. And and he also says um, to him, and we'll read it here together in a minute, it's your kingdom. What's that mean? Remember me when you get to your kingdom. One, you can remember the saved. That means you can forgive the saved. That means you have the power to forgive sins. And you're going to your kingdom. You own it. Who owns the kingdom of heaven? How, how good a job did he do, doctrine? He was amazing. Astonishing. He got a lot of things right. How did he do that? But the lost thief, and by the way, Christ is the possessor of all things, says Genesis 14, 19. He possesses everything. When you say it's your kingdom of heaven, uh, that's possession. And all of that stuff, astonishing for him to say. But the lost thief, in contrast, says the words of blasphemy. One says all his powerful, doctrinal, perfect words. The other one says all of these blasphemous, perfectly blasphemous words. You see the extreme opposite side by side here from both of them. What one says is perfect blasphemy. What the other says is almost it is perfect doctrinal. And so, uh, here the man, the lost thief, blasphemes his creator to his face and judge to his face. That's Luke 23, 39, right? And you can see it in Revelation 17, 21 and Revelation 16, 9. Dying men are more than willing to blaspheme and curse God. They do it. They'll do it again. They constantly do it. One man didn't. One man did. And there's a reason that they are 10 feet away from Christ. Equal in distance, equal in opportunity. As a, and, and Christ is demonstrating to them, by the way, that He is God over and over again. And they're watching Him, just like the Romans are watching Him, just like the Pharisees and the scribes and the political leaders and the elders are watching, just like the followers of, of Christ are watching. So we have a lot of people watching. I'm, a multitude, thousands. And you see the reactions. And as I said, dying men are more than willing to curse God. As a, as a quick aside here, the seven utterances, uh, I don't like utterances, but that's what they'll call it, are the seven sayings. I don't really even like the seven sayings because he didn't say everything. A couple of things he did what? He yelled them out. So I I break it down. I I call it the five sayings and the two screams. But they really aren't screams. They're 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 this extraordinary sound. Sound. Well, for lack of something better, I'll work on it. You have to know these seven sayings are not to be what something you can't do with them. But it's done all the time. What can't you do? You can. I'll get some. Medicine while you tell me. Never make the mistake of doing what to the seven saints? What's that? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you again. Making Christ weak? Making Christ weak is absolutely true. That's absolutely true. You cannot ever say that Christ is not God when you're interpreting what they mean. But the other thing you can't do is you can't split them up. 
That's what people do all the time. They are seven parts of a whole. If you want, they, they form seven chapters of a book. Whatever analogy you need, but you can't break them apart. You try to sever one of them out to isolate it from the others. Um, you do that and you destroy the meaning of it. And guess what they always do to Psalm 22.1? They always talk about it as if it is the only saying. They amputate it out of the seven sayings. And, uh, and it is the most amputated, for lack of a better word. That's without dispute. And therein lies the cause of so much confusion and error. They do exactly like Becky just said. They First they take the deity out, and then they start separating out all the saints and, and start to, to teach what they mean as if they're isolated from one another. They're not isolated. They all fit together beautifully. Wouldn't you expect that? And that's the cause of so much error and confusion. Keeping the forefront of Jesus Christ Godhead, or Godhood, sorry, both. Keeping in the forefront Jesus Christ Godhood is going to protect you from doctrinal catastrophe, which is with respect to why Jesus Christ, in a thunderous, deafening, almost un unlistenable, un it, was, it was painful to those people to hear him say Psalm 22 1. He quoted it. And again, last Sunday I linked the fourth, um, my God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me? And the seventh, the other thunderous, deafening, painful yell, loud voice, if you will. I can't describe it. I can't do it justice. When I was younger, I used to jump up and down and scream it as loud as I can. But that never hurt anybody's ears. You can't imagine, I don't believe. I don't know what the what the comparison would be. Maybe standing next to a F-22 as it took off. I mean, painful. Trembling, painful, loud, forceful voice. My God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me in the seventh saying? Father, into your hands I assign, deliver, sin, commit my spirit. Two powerful, frightening phrases of Jesus Christ heard throughout the entire creation. Not just the physical reality, but the spiritual reality. Same as Exodus 19.16. Now, I, I'm aware, by the way, because I do a lecture on the four, it is finished. Four times, I believe, in the Bible, it is finished, or it is done, or it is completed, is said. I infer one in Genesis, um, and the third one is in Revelation 16, 17, and that is in a loud voice, and I know about that for you folks that uh, will write me and say that I'm a ranting idiot. I did the other day uh, get a uh, You Are a Ranting Idiot letter from a gentleman in Virginia that has heard one sermon. Bless his heart. And he was sure that uh, I needed rebuking. Um, and in the past, I would probably write back. But I have learned, oh, I'll say this, by the way. Here's something that I have to carefully say. I got a phone call today from my, uh, my brother who had two men that I know uh, come to his church and disrupt his service. 
they believe they're hyper-Calvinists. They believe that God is the author of evil. They believe that small infant babies uh, upon death are thrown into the lake of fire. They believe that uh, all kinds of crazy things that you can't defend biblically, and they're adamant about it. They believe that God is not just the source of evil, but he himself is evil, and that means that his evil is good, if you can follow that logic. I have said that many times. Well, they were in my brother's church service, and they disrupted it today. He, uh, he does uh, kind of what I do. He does it a lot differently. As you know, I'll take a, I'll take a question from you during the sermon, because I'm impressed all, all the time about what you guys think during the sermon or during the lecture. My brother does it after and they were waiting for him. And they caused him great difficulty. He was very upset about it. Um, and in the past, I used to be somebody that would immediately uh, confront. And uh, I don't do that very much anymore. I've learned that it really doesn't work. So um, when I get one of these, uh, you are a ranting idiot letters like I did. And it wasn't that bad. But it wasn't, it wasn't what's the word I want uh, respectful. It certainly wasn't that, and it wasn't kind. Uh, they are mad at me, the hyper-Calvinists, and that's what this gentleman was too. They're, they're mad at me because I say that existence uh, uh, requires free will, that you don't really have resistance. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, existence, uh, and by existence, I don't mean like a piece of, uh, of concrete or uh, a plant. Cognition, self-awareness, uh, living soul. If you are a living soul, you, have, you are immortal. Immortality um, with the, the self-awareness, capability, and reasoning, and intentionality, and all those things you've heard me talk about uh, many, many times. That's what I, how I define existence. So if all you are is an automaton, you, are not, you don't have existence. You just don't know it. So you make God to be some kind of capricious cosmic sadist that way. It's... it's uh, absolutely impossible to defend it. Um, and he had to deal with it today, and he wasn't happy. And so we discussed uh, uh, how we avoid that. Yes, ma'am? Thank you, Paul. You become great next Yeah, yeah. Well, you're exactly right. Becky said, hi. She said, you can call her to come and greet. Uh, that's what you do. You just say, hey, listen, no offense. You and I are never going to share any agreement on this issue at all. You need to go find like-minded people. There's at least another one in Anchorage just like you. And then welcome them to go back out into the parking lot. There's nothing you can do. And the same thing with these letters. I, I would wish that they would, um, they would listen to at least two sermons before they write me, but that's never happened and I don't ever expect it to happen. Ah, I got off on a tangent there. A rabbi trail. <laughs> it's very funny, Shannon. Very funny. I, I'm just amazed sometimes how funny uh, these folks are out there. Okay. The fourth saying clearly has an immediate connection to the seventh saying. So when you're starting to say, why did he, why did he quote Psalm 22.1? You have to really say, why did he yell it in a voice that was heard throughout the angelic realm? Why did he yell it that loud to where they heard it and, and the entire physical creation heard it? Why did he do that? And then why did he yell out the seventh saying, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He yelled that out. So those two clearly have a connection because of the loudness 
And then I asked last week, uh, for whom or to whom would be better? Is the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who's that being said to? Who's, to whom is it directed to? Do you think you've got choices? You can say he's directing it to himself, if that's your view. Why would he say that about himself? Because if he's saying it about himself, he is saying that it is possible for him to be forsaken. Would he know if that was true? He would know. He's God. He's omniscient God, right? Does it apply to him? So you can say it's about himself. Or you can say it is about Israel. Or it's to Israel, I'm sorry. You can say it's to the church. You can say that it is uh, to save humanity. Uh, or lost humanity, Jew or Gentile, or uh, again, Israel or church, if I didn't say that, unfallen angel or fallen angel. Who is it? There's a whole group of people there you've got. Answering that, I think it really helps you. Once you figure out who it's directed to and why it's so loud. How loud did he say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just like that. Who heard it? People right around him. Two thieves heard it. Who else is right there, right at the base? Execution details there. But this one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me the entire supernatural and natural or physical realm? heard it. So who is it directed to? And answering that will help you understand why Christ said it. And then this order, why it's fourth. Why this one is seventh. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. It's perfect. It needs to be fourth and it needs to be last. Because they all fit together. Once you've got that, uh, you'll understand it again, and you'll ne- you'll understand it, and you'll never be threatened again by all the, the foolishness that is out there. All it's all again. Never get your doctrine from a Hollywood movie. There can't be anybody in Hollywood that knows anything. They can't know less. It's impossible. They know so little about the Bible. It's impossible, in my view, that Hollywood can know less. So you'll know why Christ said it. To who he said it to, and why it's in the order, and why he is on top of the head of Goliath when he says it. Because he made sure that his cross is on top of the skull of Goliath. When he says that, in a voice so loud that it's impossible not to hear it no matter where you are, and who you are, and how you're designed. And that's 1 Samuel 17.54, Genesis 3.15, for those of you who want to go look up. Those uh, references. David cut off the head of Goliath. He buried that skull exactly where that cross went. Okay, so that's our recap. Now, now let us forge ahead a little bit here. And, and we're going to have to reread Luke 23. So let's do that together. Let's find it as a trained professional. I should beat you. Some of you have those little fancy tabs now. Come on. There we go. Luke 23. And I'll start at uh, 34 today. Um, I don't always do that, but today we will. 
I hope you understand why I do it that way today. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I've got people that are doing something, and I've got no idea what they're doing. And that's why I make the case, by the way, that that's the Roman execution detail. I think you'll see why that in a minute. Therefore, given. He is issuing, what's he doing? He's issuing an order. Father, forgive them. He doesn't say, Father, would you forgive them? If you find time, could you forgive them? That's a directive. Father, how much power, authority does he have? They got all of it. He's part of the triune Godhead. Father, forgive. When he says, Father, forgive them, they are forgiven. They can't help but be forgiven. So whoever the them is, they got good news right there. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So I've had a lot of people in the past saying it's good to be stupid. And yes and no. Worked out this time. Don't don't gamble. And they divided, you see, and they divided. So now you know who the them is, don't you? Tells you. And they divided his garments and cast lots. They're so ignorant. They're dividing his garments. They don't know what they're doing. And, and, and they don't divide it, do they? Because that turns out to be a very special garment. That's another story. That's the mantle of Elijah. And, and the people stood looking on. And even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. What an incredible statement that is. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him coming and offering him sour wine. By the way, there's two times they offer him something, right? If you don't know what, what that's about, maybe I'll get back into that again. Um, why he turns one down and takes one. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So the soldiers are getting right in here. And an inscription also was written uh, over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. That's Pilate. Then one of the criminals uh, who thought of that. And then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him. And this is a very important verse. And we now get a definition of blasphemy. Saying, if you are the Christ, that's blasphemy. Save yourself. That's blasphemy. And us. That's blasphemy. All blasphemy. All three parts. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God, you idiot? Okay, I added that. Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. He's again saying, I deserve this. What did that guy do? What did he do? But this man has done nothing wrong. Not one thing. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, calls him Lord, you are the rememberer of the saved. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So you're going to come into your kingdom like a king does. You own the kingdom. 
That's incredible understanding. And Jesus said to him, did he scream it? Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. Being with Christ is what? Good news. That's what we want. In paradise. Now, it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice again, how loud is it? It's deafening, thunderous, painful, brutal. Who's he saying it to? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who's that directed to? So when the centurion, this is important, saw, what's the obvious question? What did he see? Did he see the, th- the uh, veil being ripped in part in him? Get to that in a second. So when the c- centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God. What does that mean? Saying, certainly this was a righteous man. He also said, this man was or is the Son of God. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing... What had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee uh, stood at a distance watching these things. So uh, those are all the pieces, and hopefully you gather them as best you can. Now, I'm going to repeat some uh, so that uh, as emphasis. I, I have to put it on the board, but I don't think I've got time to do it. If I do, I'll go back. Father, forgive them. Got to figure out who the them is. He saved others. They admit that Jesus Christ saved others. That's the Pharisees admit that. He saved others. And they mocked him. If you are God, save yourself. That's mocking. We have this blaspheming now that's in contrast with the remembering. And again, your kingdom. You will be with me. And then the darkness and this unexplainable, uh, there's no way I can do it justice, loud voice. Father, I assign my spirit. I'm delivering my spirit to your hands. And then the satirian, the Roman, more evidence, by the way, when you're glorifying God and declaring Christ to be God and declaring Christ to be without sin, then what are you on your way to be? Forgiven. You're all, you've made it. The Roman did it. That made, that's the evidence. The forgiven person came out, who was doing something, came out and demonstrated his forgiveness right there. And then this whole crowd, the centurion saw what had happened, and what he saw, he comes out with, this glory of God. Certainly, this is God. And the whole crowd, crowd saw the whole crowd. Okay, what crowd are they talking about here? These are the these are the Jewish people there, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people. Look what they did, and the whole crowd who came together to that sight. Not S-I-T-E, S-I-G-H-T. Seeing what had been done. They saw something. 
centurion saw something? That's the obvious question. What did they see? They then began to beat their breasts and they returned. Where did they go? But all his acquaintances, I love this part, and the women. So what? Women are not acquaintances. But it keeps happening, doesn't it? <laughs> but all his acquaintances, who are these acquaintances? And the women who followed him from Galilee. So I have women who followed him from Galilee. Who are the Galilean women here? Okay. But who are the acquaintances? They stood at a distance. So I got two groups of people again. I got people right there who see something and then they start smoting their breast. They start beating on themselves. And they go back. But the acquaintances and the women from Galilee, they stay there. Why this difference? I got the difference between the two thieves. I have the Romans. I have the crowd. I have the acquaintances and the women. And they all do something. Now, when you add in the other loud voice to... uh, and again, Father, into your hands. I mean, it's so loud, it's unbelievable. You add the other loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Immediately, I hope you recognize how important this is. No, that's not a good word. It's critical to have the correct definition of forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? What's the meaning of forsaken? If I said those people have been forsaken by God and those people have been remembered by God. What am I saying? Why have you forsaken me? It means abandoned. It means deserted. <coughs> Excuse me. It also inferred into it is depravity. The abandonment is there because of corruption. He's been abandoned to his corruption. He's been abandoned to his dereliction. You start studying the word forsaken, you will see those terms assigned to it, depravity, dereliction, corruption. Uh, that's problematic if you're going to conclude that Jesus Christ is referencing himself, as so many do. That's the common view, that, that Christ is saying that about himself, that he is the one being forsaken. Well then, if you believe that, and I hope you stop, But if you do believe that, which is what you've been taught your whole lives, I know that. But then you've got Christ doing what when he's on the cross? Thinking about who? Himself. Is that consistent with who he is? Is that your view, really? On the cross, he's worried about himself? Make sure I get the right page here. Good. Let's ask some questions about that. How is it possible that omnipresent God, which is who he is, could be forsaken? Now, I'm aware of the Henry Morris view and and those like it. I love Henry Morris. I have every book he ever wrote. He was a devoted, devout, tremendous theologian, godly man. He's a saved man. Henry Morris had this view and he wrote it down, bless his heart. And he said, "Christ, there was a period of time where Christ is not God. And, and, and then he became God again. 
And that's so illogical, I don't even know how to begin to address it. I addressed it a while back with Joseph Farrar when Mark from Texas asked the question, how is it that I can stop being infinite God inside of time? How long does it take to add or to pour out infinity? And how long does it take to get the infinity back? Henry Morris believes it happened uh, during the hours of the crucifixion. or that That's what he taught, at least. And that's just incomprehensible. I have an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, and he empties himself of his infinity, because omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence requires infinity. How long does it take, again, to empty yourself of that? Do we have enough time to empty infinity? Of course we don't. So, ask the question, how can omnipresent God be forsaken? How is it possible? If I'm omnipresent, how big is the creation? Okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to give you the size of the creation. Here is the size, I'm going to make it so you can see it. There is the size of the entire creation. All of it, everything that's created. How big is God compared to that? Well, just just to be silly, I'm going to make God Okay? I'll put the creation outside of him. How am I going to forsake the him? Where do I hide him? Where do I put put him? He can't fit in the creation. The creation has to fit in him. So again, omnipresence. How do I desert? How do I abandon? How do I leave omnipresence alone? How does the triune Godhead forsake the triune Godhead? The statement makes no sense when you apply it to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken my God? Or my God, my God, or God, God, why have you forsaken God? Makes no sense. And then how does the omnipotent unity, if if you're clinging to this view, become non-unity? How do I, I have, I have God. He's one. He's, he's, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. One! Now I'm going to divide out, what, a third? What, ha- what happens to unity if I'm able to separate it, even for a brief amount of time, is, is um, Mr. M- Dr. Morris thought. How do I do it for a brief amount of time? What happens to the omnipotence of the one who is no longer, who has been abandoned, if that were even possible? And once again, we have the definition of blasphemy. Now, you see, you gotta remember this definition of blasphemy. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him. This is, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. That's blasphemy. And we have that bubbling up here. Whenever you start saying that Psalm 22, 1 is about Christ, I'm going to tell you, you're right on the edge, if not buried in blasphemy. It's bubbling to the top of the soup, if you will. It's unequivocal that to mock Christ by, it's unequivocal that to mock Christ by shouting, save yourself, is blasphemy. If you say, save yourself to Christ, you are blaspheming God. We covered that last Sunday. Jesus Christ is salvation. He embodies salvation. He is salvation manifested. He cannot be saved because he is never in need of salvation. It is impossible for him to be saved. And I'll get into Hebrew 5 next week. It's about capacity and omnipotence. Just I say that if I was good, just hypothetically is stupid. I know it. I, I'm going to get blasted for it on the internet. And it's okay. Go ahead. 
fire away. I'll seed the, 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 the argument just for the sake of it. Christ needs to be saved somehow. How much power does it take to save him? How much power I got to bring to the game here? I got to have omnipotence. Why do I have to have omnipotence? Because he's omnipotence. So who's able? Who has omnipotence? Only the God has, has omnipotence. He cannot be saved. He is never in need of salvation. It's impossible for him to be saved. And, and it's likewise impossible for him to be abandoned by the very definition of omnipresence. Omnipresence cannot be forsaken. Neither can omniscience, by the way. How do you forsake someone that knows everything? Where do you go to where he can't know you? And how much power does it take to go everywhere and be everywhere? It takes all the power. You say that he can be forsaken. You've stripped him of his deity. That is exactly what save yourself if you are the Christ of. It's impossible for him to be saved. It's impossible for him to be uh, uh, forsaken. Salvation cannot be saved and omniscience cannot be forsaken, nor can omnipresence. And it's blasphemy to accuse Christ of needing salvation. It is blasphemy to suggest that Christ is anything but omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. And it is blasphemy to order him to save us. These people that say that he is quoting Psalm 22 and that it is about himself are saying that he is not God. And Henry Morris admits it, knows that's true. That's why he writes it. There is a period of time on the cross when he is not God, and that is blasphemy. I know they struggle with it. I get it. All they have to do is say, why did he say it in a loud voice? And who is he saying it to? Not saying it to himself, because that would be Blasphemy. He would know. He knows that he's omnipotent. I used to ask the question when I teach in eighth grade Bible school. I said, how big a, how big a four-wheel drive do I need to pull him off that cross? How many horses? What's it take to get him? He doesn't go. What's keeping him there? He's keeping himself there. How are you going to get him down? With what? How big a chain? You can't move him. He's omnipotent God. And he knows he's omnipotent God. And he knows he's omniscient and omnipresent God. And he knows he's everywhere and he is infinite. He knows that. So why would he say, why have you forsaken me? It's impossible to forsake him. You've got him saying nonsense. Let's deal with this. If you are God... Um, Let's, let me repeat it. One of the criminals said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. It's blasphemy to order him to save us. It's the same as saying, if you are God, save God and save me. Those are the literal words of the lost thief and the Pharisees. He has the power to forgive sin and save others. That's not in dispute. It's no dispute about that. It was not and is not in dispute. He therefore has and is the solution to sin and free will. 
sin and free will. That's Matthew 4. That's what this ultimately becomes about. And only God himself has the extraordinary power that is required to forgive sin. Ask these questions now as we're running down. Why does it take so much power to forgive sin? It takes more power to forgive sin than to do anything else. Why? Oh, got any ideas? Feel free to join in. I hope you. How much sin is there? A lot of sin. You know, I've gotten in the discussion, uh, I've, I've said things badly here, so I'll try to be careful this time. For Bill's sake. Uh, how much sin is there? Lots of sin. Where is it? When did it happen? Who knows about it? How big a computer I gotta have? I gotta remember, I mean, it takes, there's a lot of sin. We're gonna take that on next week. Why is it blasphemy? I asked this a couple of times, I'll do it again, to order God to save us, because that's what he does. If you are the Christ, he's saying, if you are, what's that? Blasphemy. You never say to Christ, if you are God. Never. If you do, it's blasphemy. Save yourself. Now you're implying that he needs to be saved. So they must have sin in him. Two blasphemies. Now we go to the third one. Save me. Why is it blasphemy to order God to save us? Back to Matthew 4 and Genesis 15, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14... That's what this is ultimately about, the first lie of Satan. All of that is the first lie of Satan. The lie that says that God is the cause or the source. Now you know why I brought up the hyper-Calvinists today. They just walked right into my lecture. They say that God is the cause and the source and the author of all sin. They say it, they repeat it, they scream it, and they're angry about it. And therefore, God cannot judge anybody because he's the one that caused it in the first place. And therefore, all must be what? Because God is the source of sin, the cause of sin. He's the one that designed sin and created sin and imputed sin. Therefore, what? Everybody's got to be acquitted because he can't judge. He's unqualified. He's unable to condemn. There is no free will. We're all robots. We just do what he made us do. There's no accountability for anyone. There's no solution to sin. There's no free will. There's no condemnation because condemnation is unjust. Therefore, nobody will be forsaken. None will be abandoned. None will will perish. That's universalism, by the way. That's where hyper-Calvinists, bless their hearts, can't figure out that they're arguing on the same side as the universalists and the monists. The evolutionists also say there's no free will, only chaos and robots. And the universalists say that God will save everybody no matter what. You just, they're, they're linear, the arguments go right side by side. And that is what is inherent in the lost thief's demand. The lost thief says, Save me. What did the saved thief say? Remember me. I deserve what I'm getting. The lost thief did not say that. He said, save me. It was an order. If you are God, save yourself, save me. Actually, he said, save us. 
not the saved thief. He said, listen, he confesses. He's deserving. He justly is deserving. And he's deserved, deserving of abandonment to be forsaken. Okay? You order God to save you, and his response is what? Do you deserve it? And your response is what? No. I deserve death. That's what the second thief said. You see the difference? One says, save me if you're God. The other one says, I deserve to die. Remember me. Forgive me. Have mercy. Why does God forsake? Clearly he does. Why does he? What's his reason forsaking? Here's the counterpoint part to that forsake question. Why does God save or forgive? Same thing. Remember. Why does he do it? The first thief didn't know why he did it. Why he does it. The second thief, the saved thief, did know. You notice the pattern now developing in the seven saints from the cross? My God, my God, why do you forsake? And that is the opposite of Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Forgiveness is the absolute opposite of forsakenness. Remember me is the absolute opposite of if you are God, save me. Those are opposites. And you will be with me is the absolute opposite of I thirst. So you can begin now to see this pattern. Let me repeat that. Forgiveness is the opposite of forsakenness. Remember me is the opposite of if you are God, save me. Does God have to save you? If you say God has to save you, if you are God, you have to save me, what are you saying? You're saying there is no just condemnation. And now you are saying God is the author of sin. That's the logic. You will be with me, he says to the thief. That is the opposite of I thirst. God does not thirst for water, does he? So why does Jesus Christ, he is the living water. If you have me, you'll never thirst. Why does the one who says you'll never thirst, if you have me, does he have himself? Why does he say I thirst? What does God thirst for? That's another question that must be answered. Obviously, it's not water. He's not thinking... Like us, it is a doctrinal statement, not a physical statement. How many times do I, I read, oh, we gotta get him a Pepsi or something, you know. What are, what are you thinking? He's the living water. Quickly, a few more questions that must be answered. What did the whole crowd see that made them beat their breasts? 
all of them saw something. The people over here, the centurion and the people, at the, they saw something. They had three different reactions. The, the acquaintances and the women from Galilee, they kept watching. The centurion falls to his knees and says, that's God. The others beat their breasts and they returned to Jerusalem. What did they see? Was it the totality of all of it or was it uh, related to Jesus Christ? See, what he's doing there. He is blowing out his candle. You've heard me talk about that before. He's demonstrating that he has the ability to lay down his life at will. I can blow it out. He is in absolutely no position where anyone thinks he is in danger of death. In fact, they think the opposite. The whole crucifixion went that way. There was never a time during his crucifixion that he did not demonstrate. And you can see that in Moses. Moses is a type of this in and Moses is vim and vigor and dying on the mountain. There you have this small portrait. Christ is going through his crucifixion with total authority, complete control. There's no evidence at all that he is in any danger of dying at any time ever. They're looking at him going, those Romans are going, you know, live on that cross for 20 years. We can't stop him. We can't make him die. Nobody can kill this guy. We beat him as hard as we could. We didn't impact him. Now we got him on the cross. We're not impacting him. He's yelling things out. He's killing our ears. He's doing whatever he wants to do. We got no, he made us go up and put our cross right here. We don't, we wanted to put it on the road with the rest of them. The birds don't come near him. We're in trouble. And finally, he says this, my God, my God, I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit into your hands. Now that statement, do you, do you have the right to say that to God? No, we don't. Christ does. That's a statement of authority, of power, of godhood, of omnipotence, of omniscience, omnipresence. And he blows out the candle. Boom, now he's dead. We thought we couldn't kill him and he's dead right now. Poof, just as instant as he says it, bang, he's dead. Stunned him. Demonstrating his ability to lay down his life at will, take it up at will. I say that all the time. I can lay it down, I can take it up. I, 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 he, I don't know how many times he needs to say it or demonstrate it. And the centurion, the Romans... They all glorify him. As soon as that centurion glorifies him, what do you think the rest of them do? Study the Roman army. Everybody was on the ground. And they're the, the them. Father, forgive them. Now, verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done. What site exactly? The mockers were changed into breast smoters. They stopped mocking. They started beating on themselves, right? Was it the darkness that did that? Was it the first loud voice, Psalm 22.1? Was it the second loud voice? Was it the Romans all on their knees, on their face? They couldn't see the torn veil. That's back in Jerusalem, right? I submit that the final event is the most likely. When Jesus Christ demonstrates his ability to control his spirit, to have the authority to send himself to the throne room of God, to have the authority to say those, those words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and it happens. He not only said it, it happened. What's the meaning of that? Consider that. Consider what he's saying. Consider that it was obeyed, if you will, that it actually occurred. I'm assigning my spirit. I'm sending my spirit into the throne room, into the hands 
of God. What is required for that? The Father will accept. The Godhead will accept the Spirit of Christ. In order to do that, he's got to be God himself. That's why there's no steps to the altar, by the way. The law of the altar, Exodus 20, 22 through 26. And he, by the way, he's got to know that he can say it. He's got to know he has the authority to say it. He's got to know that he has the ability to say it. If he isn't worthy, if he doesn't have the authority, what is he doing? It's blasphemy. And the fact that it happened tells you that it's true. Okay? That's a lot to chew on. We'll clean it up next week. And then uh, no lectures the 25th and the 1st of September. Let's get ready for the brisket and the Kentucky Fried Chicken.